turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue on in our series in 1 Peter. Um, when Eric called me, uh, when Eric called me on Friday evening, I thought about immediately changing my sermon. And I came to this realization. God is sovereign. God has determined that I'd be going through 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-17, through 17, and I could trust Him on that. And on top of that, there is a time for mourning and a time for dancing. And this is Sylvia's time for dancing. So we're just going to let her dance. okay? And uh, we'll have plenty of time to remember and to rejoice. And um, So we will do that as a church family. But we want you to know we love you. First uh, Peter chapter three, come to a kind of strange passage here in the letter where there's kind of a transition now that's happening. In the first couple of chapters, Peter has been telling us that we are the people of God, that we have an inheritance with Christ, that we are outsiders in the world, that we were never meant to be the inner circle. We have lived in a blessed, blessed, blessed culture here in America where we as Christians have had freedom. That was never the um, promise of Scripture for us that we would have a lot of freedom when it comes to being believers. Instead, what's promised us is there would be suffering and persecution as believers. That's why we're told to count the cost. Um, and the reality is that our culture has shifted quite a bit now. And honestly, when I when I look around, and whether it's the fact that we can't seem to find a presidential candidate who can actually be civil, um or the fact that cancer stinks. And that's the strongest word I can use from the pulpit. <laughs> um, this world is broken. And this world needs to be restored and renewed and remade. And God has promised to do that through Jesus Christ. And He will. He will accomplish that. That is our hope. We have a living hope today that Christ will accomplish his purpose of restoring and renewing, making all things new. And here's the news that we need to get right from First Peter and from the Bible and just in our lives in general as we live in this world is he starts with us. We too often think that it's the programs and the things around us that need to change. God's plan for changing the world and renewing the world is to renew us. And that we become agents of that reconciliation and that renewal in the world. And so as we submit to that reality that we're going to live in this brokenness and in this hardship, we're going to live with bosses who are awful. We're going to live with leaders in government who are awful. Some are going to have to live in marriages that are tough and hard. That we submit to authority over us because we are submitting to the authority of God. We're submitting to His will and His plan. And when we begin to realize that, we come to this passage where now we're called to submit to one another. And I find that really interesting because we're told to submit to all of these difficult situations. And then we're told to kind of the way we live together as believers is a sort of submission. Now, what that tells me is some of you just aren't easy to get along with, evidently. Um, that I don't think I'm included in that, but some of you are very difficult to get along with, evidently. But as we come to this, we're commanded, we're told that as we're living in this world, that our distinctiveness as the people of God is what's going to do the most work of restoring the world to what God has designed it to be. 
our distinctiveness. We can't be people who are the same as the world. We have to be distinct from the world. On top of that, the tendency is that as we look at our world around us, we we tend to fall into a couple of categories as Christians. When we look at the world broken around us, we're, we're sad by what we see because we remember a better day. Okay, I'm 40 years old. Honestly, don't remember a better day. If I'm being honest. The 80s were great, sure. Yeah, everybody was hopped up on crack cocaine. Right, but we were rich. I don't really remember that much of a better day. Um, I remember my school days where we were more concerned about whether you know, the Soviet Union was going to be launching missiles at us or not. I wore a shirt that says, you know, as long as there's the threat of thermonuclear war, there'll be prayer in schools. You know, that was the reality. Okay. So what were the better days? But we're sad because we seem to have lost a better day. Um, we're angry. We're angry because of the, what the world is taking from us. And we tend to see the world as Christians. We, we have a tendency. And there's this danger for us as Christians that we would see the world as a threat. And I want you to understand this. That if the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, this world cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, if the gates of hell have nothing they can do to the people of God, this world's got nothing. Okay? Does that mean that we just go, well, no big deal? No, no, no. We engage the world, but we engage the world with hope, not with anger and with fear. Uh, there's a danger that we that we run into, and that is that we tend to rail against the culture. But I don't want you to understand that as we're coming to Scripture today, we're not just coming to learn something. We're coming to be changed. And as we hear this, I don't want you to just have in your mind this, yeah, okay, I get that. I want it to change your hearts. And so that should be our prayer, that we would stay with the Word until we can, in the middle of all the hardship, as Tim Chester says, we read it until our heart cries out, the Lord is good. And we keep coming back. So this week... Through all the hardship, through all of the pain, and through all of the sorrow, through the, I gotta come back and I gotta go, the Lord is good. I gotta keep coming back and say, finding that the Lord is good. But I also look at the world around me and my tendency is to rail against the culture. Russell Moore puts it this way, to rail against the culture is to say to God that we, as believers, are entitled to a better mission field than the one He's given us. <laughs> Think about that for just a second. Think about what He says. They're lost people. What do we expect them to act like? Other than lost people. Right? For us to rail against the culture and to say, can't believe it, and to deal with it in anger would be to say, God, why couldn't you just give us a better mission field? This is His sovereign plan that we would live at this time, in these days, with this good news of Jesus Christ. The same good news that was necessary for Christians to have 2,000 years ago when they were being burned at the stake. Right? When they were being put on crosses and fed to lions. It's the same good news. Does it work? Yes. Will it change hearts? Yes. Will it change the world? Absolutely. And so we want to be distinct from the culture. And we want to take a good news message to the culture. We want to be people of hope. And that means we've got to look different than the culture. And so we come to verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you, so none of us are off the hook. All of us are on the hook right now. 
Okay, you can underline that all of you. That includes you. That includes me. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Underline that word. Underline that word bless. It's going to be essential for the believer to understand this. Why? Because this bless is for to this you were called. This is your calling. If you want to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, you've got to bless people. And then he goes on, and why do you bless? So that you may obtain a blessing. Underline that word blessing. If you want a blessing, you're going to have to be a blessing. That's what Peter is telling us. 4, verse 10, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You can underline it there, too. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In chapters 1 and chapter 2, and at the beginning of chapter 3, we are called to submit to our new identity in Christ. That we have a new identity as the people of God bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're we're to submit to God's sovereign plan that he places us in this time period, in in an area and in a world where we are on the outside looking in. We're like exiles. Okay, living on the outside, we don't, we're not in the promised land anymore. Okay? But this is the sovereign plan of God. Submit to the God-honoring purpose of God that we want to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, that we want to abstain from the passions of the flesh, that we want to keep our conduct honorable before the people who do not know God. We want to submit to God, the God-ordained and allowed authorities in our lives. God has raised up kings and presidents and leaders, and we're to submit to them because we're submitting to God. But here we're called to submit to one another, all of us. So what does a believer look like who is submitted to God and therefore submitted in these ways and then submits to one another? Well, there's a list right there in verse 8 and 9. I want you to see it. We will be of the same mind. We'll have the same purpose, the same identity, the same direction. We'll understand that God is our Father, Christ is our King, the Gospel is our message, and we are, new, we are new life people. And we have a living hope. So we'll have the same mindset. We won't be the people of fear. We'll be the people of hope. We won't be the people with, you got to do things our way. We'll be the people of the gospel. We have the same mind. We're going to be sympathetic. We're going to understand each other's weaknesses. And if we don't understand each other's weaknesses, we're going to strive to understand each other's weaknesses. Our tendency is to say things like, well, I don't know what they're going through, and I sure am glad about that. But sympathy would say, I need to know what you're going through so that I can love you through it. I'm willing to get my hands dirty. Being a Christian and submitting to one another sometimes means getting dirty. Messy church. That's what we're called to. Sympathy demands that. We will love one another as brothers. It says brotherly love there. How do you love someone as a brother? Well, you don't treat them like they're an outsider. 
Don't treat them like they're an add-on to your life. The people who are in the body of Christ that are around you, this is your family. These are the people that that will be closest to you. These are the people that will end up serving you and loving you through hard times. So do the same for them. Lay down yourselves for one another. We're going to be tender-hearted. We're going to be tender-hearted towards one another. I'm going to be more concerned about you and how my words affect you than I am about how your words affect me. Okay, This is being thin-skinned for other people, but thick-skinned yourself. Does that make sense? You, when somebody says it about you, 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 you bear with it if you can. But you realize that when you said it to someone else and it hurt them, you don't need to defend. You don't need to defend yourself. You apologize. You love. You, you're tender-hearted. No matter how right you are. Tender-hearted. We're going to be humble. I love the way the Bible puts humility. Do not think too highly of yourselves. <laughs> That's like the best definition, isn't it? But take on the nature of Jesus. That even though he had all the power, all the rights, all the authority, he even went to the cross out of obedience and humility. We're going to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. We're not going to get even. That's God's job. Let me say that again. It is not your job to get even. But I hear far too often from Christians, from people who claim to be followers of Christ, I hear too often these words. They started it. Well, we're just responding to them, okay? They beat him. They spat upon him. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They nailed him to a cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Praise the Lord he didn't respond like we do. How many of you have been crucified recently? We as the people of God are called to better than that. Better than that. We're called to righteousness. We're not called to doing harm to others. But instead, and look at verse 9. This is what it says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. The person who would want to get even or the person who would want to say, well, they started it, is contrary. That's the word that is used here. Is the opposite of someone who's blessing others. You cannot bless others. This is the simplest way to put it. You cannot bless others when you're looking out for yourself. You cannot bless others when you're trying to make sure you get yours. You cannot bless others when you're simply reacting to others and what they've done to you. You will only bless others if you are proactive with unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Only when you're proactive will you be able to be a blessing. So we are called to bless there's a perfect picture of this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, where the people of God have been taken into exile out of the promised land. When they're in exile, they're thinking, is God even for us anymore? Is he keeping his promises? We don't have a place to worship. We don't even have a place to live. Here we are in the exiled land of Babylon. What do we do here? And this is the word of the Lord for his people in exile. Much like we seem to be waiting to get to the promised land, right? And we seem sometimes as if God's not working as fast as we would like for him to work. Anybody feel that way? 
It would be really nice if God would just work a little faster, but we trust his timing and we're here now. So what do we do in this culture? This is what Jeremiah 29 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent. That's what God says. He sent them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This is not by accident we are here today in this time period, but instead we seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. How often do we pray for ourselves as opposed to praying that God would change the hearts of others? When was the last time? When was the last time? This is just you prayed for our president to come to Christ. Not just prayed for our president to get things right. Pray for the ultimate welfare. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its blessing, you will find blessing. In its welfare, you will find welfare. Bless, and you will get a blessing. It seems in verse 9 that to get a blessing, to obtain a blessing, is conditional upon us blessing. We have to be a blessing in order to get a blessing. Tim Chester puts it this way, It is so important to love your neighborhood and its culture. As we sense the fact that we are being marginalized with the wider culture, it's also really easy for us to view the culture as a threat. But viewing the culture around you as a threat is not a good starting point for reaching people with the gospel. You will not reach people with the gospel that you don't love. You won't reach people you see as a threat with the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail Neither will this world. They're no threat to us as the people of God. That's what the next verses say, right? That's what we read right after this quote. It says, verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If we understand that God is the just judge and that we can trust him and that he is the one who hears our prayers, then what do we have to fear of this world? The picture that's used in verses 10 through Uh, 12 is the picture of David. This is from Psalm 34. We read part of that psalm earlier. This is from later in that psalm. And this is the part of the story. If you go to Psalm 34, there's a heading at Psalm 34, and this is what it says. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Abimelech was the king of Gath, um, also known as Achish. And it says that he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. David got driven out by Abimelech. And what does it mean for him to change his behavior? You can actually read it in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22, but it's a pretty fascinating story. Saul was the king, and Saul wanted David dead because of his jealousy and because David had been anointed as the coming king. So Saul wanted David dead, so Saul is pursuing David. So David goes to Gath, and there's Abimelech, and Abimelech is like uh, not a friend of David. He's a friend of Saul's, okay? And so David is in danger of being killed by this persecuting king. So what does he do? He starts drooling on himself and acting like a crazy person. This is what he does. He comes to the gate and he just starts acting crazy. 
Well, back then, if you killed a crazy person, it was like there was a curse that was going to be put on you. So you didn't kill crazy people. So instead, they just sent him out of the city and said, get away from us. And so David was saved by that. And he goes off into a cave and he's hiding out in the cave, afraid for his life. And his reaction when he gets to the cave, does he say, Lord, what have you done to me? Why am I in this situation? Here I am like a madman running away from people and you're the one with all the power, God. What's wrong? Why won't you save me? What's wrong with you, God? Now, this is what he said. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He goes on. And he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and keep his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There will be two opportunities David would have to kill Saul. And he could have gotten away scot-free with it. Two opportunities where he had the life of Saul in his hands, where he could have taken his life and never been caught. And both opportunities, he had all the power and all the ability and all the opportunity to take his vengeance. And both times he let Saul live. Why? Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If we're going to be the people of God distinct from the world, we have to be people that have a hope that drives us to peace. That have a hope that allows us to bless the world around us leading to peace. That we become true agents of reconciliation in this world. God has reconciled us to himself and we become agents of that reconciliation. Ambassadors to the world saying, be reconciled to God. We want peace between God and man. The hope of being a blessing is that we will be blessed. But in order for us to obtain our blessing, we're going to have to bless others. When? Well, according to the passage, when we are suffering for righteousness sake. When do we bless others? Well, it's verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I find it really interesting that verse 13 comes right before verse 14. Look at what it says. Now, is there harm to, is there, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He says, who's going to harm you if you're pursuing righteousness? Verse 14. But if you suffer for righteousness sake, he says, well, people are going to cause suffering in your life, but they can't harm you. They can cause suffering, but they can't destroy you. You will be blessed. So he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When will we see this blessing? When we are suffering for righteousness sake. Why? Because suffering for doing good is better than suffering for doing evil. There is no blessing in suffering for doing evil. That's what verse 17 tells us outright. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, for us to act like the world and think that just because we're being as angry and just in our responses and our speech and our reviling, it's we're just being like them and then they're like, well, they come back at us with it and we go, well, that's just because I'm a Christian. No, that's because you're a jerk. Suffering for being a jerk isn't righteous suffering. 
Now, when you stand and you say, and you take it, and you take it, and you take it, and you speak truth and love, that you speak the gospel, and you speak true hope, and you get it back in anger and all of that, that's suffering for righteousness' sake. The suffering for being a jerk, there's no good in that. There's no blessing in that. How are we going to see this blessing? By not living in fear of the people who seek to destroy us. But instead, living in a healthy fear of God. Look back at the passage. Don't, do not fear them, verse 14, or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Fear God as being holy. Value Christ as being holy. Make sure Christ has that preeminent place in your heart as being holy. Fear Him. Look to Him. And you don't have to fear those around you. Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and toss it into hell. That's God. Fear God, not man. Because they can do nothing to you in the end. Trust yourself to the just judge, just as Jesus did as we read in chapter 2, that he trusted himself to the just judge, and so he took what came. How do we, how do we receive this blessing? By not viewing the culture as a threat. By being of good conscience, which means that your life and your words have to match up because ultimately that will silence your enemies. This makes no sense when you're suffering. It makes no sense to the world that you would have a hope. You're going to need to give an answer for the hope that you have in the middle of your suffering. And that answer is not going to be a bombastic, well, you'll never understand. No, it's going to be a hope that's internal that causes peace within us, that then allows us to speak the gospel to people in the hardest situations. I, I have to tell the story, as hard as it is to tell. Uh, Tuesday, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to go over and hang out with Sylvia. And um, I walked in. I was not welcome. Um, I found out I was not invited. Um, that's what she told me. Um, my feelings were... Really hurt. Actually, I just laughed. I thought it was hilarious. She told me later, you, you were invited. You just invited yourself. And, uh, but uh, Sylvia loved the song, The Old Rugged Cross. And she sang it for us while we were there. Afterwards, Joanie asked the question, why, why the Old Rugged Cross? Most girls your age would not choose the old rugged cross her answer most girls my age don't have a brain tumor now that's perspective that's taking what God has ordained in your life no matter how hard and giving a reason for the hope that is in you no matter the attitude she liked to give me or whatever, I knew that what she believed and what she was living matched up as her faith matched her actions. And she valued being with Jesus even more than being with her family. And so you want to know what it is to be a blessing? Value Christ. Have a reason for your living hope. Why? 
because we have a blessing waiting for us that far outweighs anything it would cost us to be a blessing to others here. We have a blessing that is ours in Christ that far outweighs any sort of blessing that it co- anything it would cost us to give here. How do we display this hope? With gentleness and respect. Because we don't want to just show how awesome our faith is. Our goal is to show how awesome our God is. We want others to share in that faith. So when the world pushes us to the fringes, is the goal to get back to the center and back to the way things used to be? Or is the goal for the people that are now in the center to move to the fringes with us? You understand what I'm saying? The goal isn't for us to get back to the center. The goal is for them to move to Jesus. So we've got to go there, not to stay there and have a place among them. We've got to go to them to bring them to where we are. That's why. That's why we need to be distinct. Russell Moore puts it this way, and I'll close with this thought. <laughs> a church that loses its distinctiveness is a church that has nothing distinctive with which to engage the culture. So if we look no different, we sound no different, we act no different than the world around us, we've got nothing to engage the culture with. Simply put, a worldly church is of no good to the world. And let me simplify that even more. A worldly Christian is of no good to the world. It's been said of people, and it's a joke, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Well, I would say most Christians don't suffer from that. Most Christians suffer from being too so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. <laughs> well, that we could get that straight and be changed to be distinctive. God's plan is not just to change this world. God's plan is to change you and me and use us to change the world. The way he changes us is by faith in Jesus Christ, by us turning from our sins and placing our faith in him. We're going to sing a couple of songs that have to do with that. I want you to I want you to hear the words. I want you to see the words. I want you to sing the words to these songs and realize the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And pray now as we go into this that these words would take root in your heart and they would change you and transform you. That though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As they beat him and they killed him. He gave himself up willingly. No one could take his life from him. No one could take Jesus' life from him. He laid it down for us that we might have life in him. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing together as we close. Father, make us new so that we can be a blessing to the world. Lord, help us to live to be a blessing, knowing that we have a blessing waiting for us. Lord, help us to do whatever it costs and to accept the cost that comes. Because we accept your plan, we submit to your plan, we submit to your way, we submit our hearts to you, and we live that way. There's nothing that can't be done by your power working through us. And so we need your power to accomplish this task of proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. So as we sing now, we want to proclaim how